ICA presents. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Communicating for Impact podcast series, a production of the ICA Podcast Network. I'm Patrice Busnell, Distinguished Professor at the University of South Florida, ICA Fellow, and ICA Past President. I am delighted to invite Jason Hannon, Lena Frischlich, and Tim Chateau-Eckrod to the podcast. Jason is an associate professor in the Department of Rhetoric, Writing, and Communications at the University of Winnipeg, whose book, Trolling Ourselves to Death, Democracy in the Age of Social Media, will be published shortly by Oxford University Press. Lena is a communication scholar and media psychologist. She works at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. She has been the principal investigator of the Interdisciplinary Research Group on Democratic Resilience in Times of Online Propaganda, Fake News, Fear, and Hate Speech. Tim, our third speaker, is a communication scholar at the University of Hamburg who studies the influence of online propaganda on public opinion. His most recent articles are about spreading online disinformation and particularly about fake news during the COVID-19 pandemic. Jason, Lena, and Tim, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Today, we will have a conversation about culture wars, broadly speaking, with the Communicating for Impact podcast emphasis on the practical applications of our research, the what can we do with our findings and our theories. Today's episode will begin by asking each of our guests to add to my brief introductions and tell us more about their projects. Jason, let's start with you. The title of that book, Trolling Ourselves to Death, subtitled Democracy in the Age of Social Media, is obviously a play on Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Postman had argued in that book that television had brought about this fundamental change to the nature, texture, fabric of democracy in America. And it had turned public discourse into show business. So I tried to update that argument in the era of social media and argued that social media has brought about a second change. This time, instead of normalizing entertainment, it's normalized trolling, this abusive form of speech. It's made this a perfectly normal, everyday form of political rhetoric. On the one hand, I wanted to track that transformation, but then also provide a historical account of why that came to be. Not simply focusing on technology, but deeper political economic roots to that problem. Thank you so much. Lena, let's ask you about your research. Thank you. I'm currently an interim professor for empirical methods at LMU in Munich, as you already said, and I'm going to change my position and start as an associate professor at the DDC, the Digital Democracy Center in Denmark this fall. So there will be a slight shift in my research topics. My research is always very interested in the socio-technological opportunity structures that emerge in the digital realm, both for direct participation, so deviant, norm-violent, Manipulating, manipulating communication, but also how we can empower democratic resilience within the digital realm. In the last years, also in the research group you already mentioned, and together with Tim, we were particularly interested in the rise of so-called alternative counter news or alternative media with a more far-right leaning stance or the transmit conspiracy myth or conspiracy theories. Thank you. So, Tim, you've already gotten a bit of a brief introduction through Lena. What would you like to add? 
Yeah, I think I can mirror um, all the topics that Lena uh, already mentioned because she was my PI in the junior research group. What I can maybe add is that I'm currently finishing up my dissertation on conspiracy theories. I'm working on developing a theoretical understanding of the phenomenon that gives communication scholarship a distinct perspective on that phenomenon. And I'm also very interested in computational methods and in trying to measure all those instances of incivility and misinformation, trying to find all these things through computational methods in our public speech and in public communication. Thank you. It seems like we're all interested in conspiracy theories, fake news and trolling. But was there a particular incident that got you started on this research track? The election of a troll to the most powerful office in the world. I mean, there have been a few books and studies about how Barack Obama was, for example, the first social media president in the United States and how he had changed the game of American politics by being this very cool and popular social media friendly president. And there was for a while this perception among liberals in the United States that the future of American politics was a liberal game because conservatives are outdated old people who don't know anything about social media. That was a completely mistaken interpretation. The right wing did have a certain kind of social media savvy, but not that feel-good social media messaging that we saw in the 2010s with cat memes. It was the nasty, vicious dimension. They specialized and excelled and refined that side. If Obama was more of a Facebook president. Trump was very much a Twitter president. So when he announced his candidacy, his pathological lying was changing the game of American politics yet again, and it needed to be studied. In 2016, I had published a book called Truth in the Public Sphere, just about how truth is philosophically a concept that is indefinable. Nobody can actually say what truth is, and yet we can't dispense with it. We need it for everyday democratic communication. It's a very weird paradoxical concept. As I was completing the book, that's when Trump announced his candidacy. And Lena, I want to ask the same question in terms of an incident, but I also would like you to just define what democratic resilience means. That's something that I can combine in one question because I started working on the dark side of the internet very early when I finished my diploma as a psychologist in Cologne. My supervisor was invited to apply for a project about the media psychological effects of radical Islamist propaganda. We started out asking ourselves, is that really the only problem out there? That was about 2011. In Germany, the newspapers had some headlines that right-wing extremism is no longer a big problem in Germany. Turned out that's not the case. And it was during the time when Al-Qaeda was still the largest global threat. We were really interested in understanding how extremist propaganda works and how people respond to this kind of material beyond focusing on a single ideology. That's a motivation that still carries my research 12 years later. And I was really interested in why people consume this kind of material, what makes them more or less acceptable to it, but also whether it's really the technological aspect that explains why people radicalize towards a certain ideology. And then I switched to communication science in 2016. Before the big election we already talked about in the US, we were interested in a project together with Torsten Quandt on covered propaganda in social media, especially the implementation of disinformation, but also social bots to manipulate public opinions. 
For a very long time, I worked on specific phenomena in this area. It's only recently that I started to understand better how we as a socio-technological digital society can become more resilient and what that could mean in the context of these phenomena. My current stance on that, and I think it's still work in progress, is on the first step, democratic resilience can be studied and should be studied on the macro, meso and micro level. So we can look at how individuals respond to, for instance, disinformation or populism or hate speech and how they can retain their personal democratic stance in this context. We can also look at the resilience of social groups or social relationships. We see a lot of disinformation, especially in Germany, that targets disempowered groups, for instance, migrants in society. So it's also a question about how we can preserve a pluralist, liberal and inclusive society in light of the aspects. And it, you can also look at it on the level of states. When we look at the US, the question how populist actors, but also other actors, are willing to trade in democracy as a functioning system for personal gain can gamble the institutions we have in society. The second thing is that if we want to foster democratic resilience, we need to be democratically resilient ourselves. And that means that we have to reflect our own countermeasures and see whether they uphold democratic norms. And it depends a bit on how you understand democracy, what your answer to these questions will be. For instance, if you have a very critical stance and think that democracy is a public sphere where different opinions fight each other to gain the best idea, it's more like social dominance theory of democracy, then you would moderate, for instance, less hate speech compared to when you believe in deliberative models of democracy, where the public sphere should be a, a room for civilized exchange. It's not fully thought through so far how our, our own approaches to managing the challenges of democracy we see today can be held accountable depending on these standards. You're already previewing some issues that we'll talk about in a few minutes, but I first wanted to get to Tim about your response to what event got you started. My academic career started in 2018 in the full-on fake news misinformation or already an ongoing topic in communication science and in, in society. So I went into the field with this shadow of misinformation that we have to deal with. For me, at one of the moments where I really understood how our research might inform the public and public policy decisions was the pandemic. That moment where topics like conspiracy theories drew from the fringes into the mainstream, talking about how people inform themselves online, how we as a society want to deal with people who understand the world very much differently than the rest do. And that moment in time of understanding that these big crises are so connected to the way we as a society deal with information, deal with knowledge, deal with truth, what institutions we want to have that give that label of what is true, what is allowed to be said in the public sphere. Yeah, that was really an interesting backdrop to start a career in communication science. Absolutely. And all three of you have talked about the historical background, different cultural backgrounds, a global phenomena. One question that could come up is there's always been different kinds of truths. Right? There's always been propaganda and conspiracy theories. We can say on one hand, well, it's different because it's technologically mediated. But is there another difference that is salient at this point that we should be paying attention to? 
I think, yes, on the one hand, we live in a social technological environment and that has changed the access to public spheres. It has changed how people are reached. And while propaganda in ancient times always was the manipulation of state authorities for the masses, it's now increasingly cheap to produce propaganda from your garage, for instance. So I think we have new sources of propaganda. We have a globally networked public sphere where misinformation from one part of the globe can reach the other side of the globe within a second. But I also think that we live in times where the social structure itself is changing. We live in a world that is increasingly globally connected. So we also are more interested in what's happening in other parts of the world for the good and the bad. <laughs> in the era of social media, we have a different expectation and how we can participate in the public spheres, but also how how information is created and validated. We often talk about the past gatekeeper era where we had the journalists or the politicians who decided about what makes it to the public sphere. And now we have this increasingly participatory culture. I think that touches a bit on your argument uh, about trolling, Jason. But it's also something that you see, especially when you look at younger generations who more and more believe influencers and authentic individuals more than they believe in the institution for instance, of journalism. Although we don't see the steep increase in conspiracy beliefs that has always been there, but I think we live in an era where we have a different type of bargaining about what's true and what is knowledge, and that makes it a bit more complicated. Jason, you were mentioned. Would you like to pick it up from there? I was just thinking about a certain chapter in Amusing Ourselves to Death about the now this phenomenon in which a television newscaster will talk about some kind of grisly news story and then move to a deodorant commercial. And so in his discussion of how this fragmentation of television content can lead to a fragmentation of human thinking, of the human mind, he says that this erodes our sensitivity to truth and contradiction. We become more tolerant of untruth and contradiction. I think that phenomenon of fragmenting our consciousness and eroding our attentiveness to truth and contradiction is just taken to a much more extreme level on social media. There are a lot of studies like Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows. Catherine Hales has written about hypertext and hyperreading, about how this dependency on digital platforms and screens severely erodes our ability to think and our ability to read. And that one consequence of this is that somebody can contradict themselves, like Trump, for example, in the span of a single sentence, and his audience just won't even pick up on it. You're painting a very dystopian kind of view of the future as these trends are continuing. And I'm just wondering what hope you have and what we can do towards that hope of a future that isn't as bleak as what we are presenting. In that final chapter of The Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt talks about how loneliness isn't just physical isolation, it's the loss of trust in the world and the loss of trust in oneself. And when you don't have anyone to trust, including yourself, you become more susceptible to extremist totalitarian messages. And unfortunately, what we're seeing with social media is a lot of people very isolated, atomized, lonely, in their bedrooms, just screaming scrolling, 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 and they don't have any connection to a meaningful community. And so 
long story short, I make the argument that we urgently need to rebuild what I call a spirit of trust, drawing from the philosopher Robert Brendam. And I think one medium for this is public education. Public education can play a very powerful role in rekindling trust. I think we should think of the classroom as a democratic space, as part of our public sphere in which we can cultivate, yes, critical thinking skills, but also the kind of trust that I think is necessary for a sustainable democracy. Tim, I'm going to ask you, what are your thoughts about some of this? I definitely concur with Jason here. Back in the day, you could turn on your television, watch the evening news, and you had a good idea of this is what everybody will know. But today, everybody has the ability to have huge audiences. And I think we need to be better at communicating why we think certain arguments, facts, ideas can be trusted more than others. We've stopped doing this hard work of explaining people why we trust in science, why we think the things that epidemiologists or those medical professionals have said during the pandemic are true, or why we believe in them. That is something that has come out of the work that we've done in that project with schools and teaching young school children how to use the news. We always told them that they should be skeptical on the one hand, but they also have to trust in certain sources because you can't really do all the legwork of always checking every single source that you see. You need to be at least a little trusting in certain institutions. It's such a tough question to describe why I personally trust in a certain media organization, but I am skeptical towards others. We need to find better ways to talk about why we trust and the reasons we trust. You have segued into the gist of what we do with Communicating for Impact podcasts, which is what are your findings, but even more so, what do we do on an everyday basis? Thinking about moving toward a better place. When we talk about this phenomena of direct participation in more general terms, we need a whole-of-society approach. So one strategy is to address the root causes. Very often when we talk about this more pessimistic perspective on how things develop, we overlook that for large parts of the world and large parts of our population, there has never been an ideal time where there were heard in the newspapers. I think we have to get rid of the idea that democracy is something that we have have earned some years ago and now we just have it and we will have it forever. Investing in media literacy, not in the sense of only critical competency, but really understanding how do I use media? What do I do in digital environments? And how is that informed, influenced and reshaped by algorithms, by economic interests, by political interests? It's also a very important point. On a very practical basis, both newspapers, but also platforms have to invest in moderation because human behavior is very dependent on how others behave. We are herd animals. We look at the norms, how others communicate. What do we do to move out of this isolation, to recapture democracy, to work with understanding who we are in relation to other people with regard to different kinds of media access that we have? In the chapter on trust in my book, I propose what I call a pedagogy of trust. There I draw from some familiar people like Paulo Freire, Bell Hooks, Ranciere, Stanley Aronowitz, Henry Giroux, who are proponents of critical pedagogy. If we think of democracy as grounded in public conversation, we have to give students a taste of public discourse could be. 
I make the argument that we can use classrooms for precisely that purpose. We try to foster trust, but it's not, as Tim was saying, a blind trust. It's a critical trust where we can trust and disagree at the same time. Bell Hooks has some very beautiful examples of this, how in the classroom we should be having difficult discussions about race, class, and gender. If somebody has a different point of view, we don't automatically rush to the worst assumption and think that they're the enemy and we need to shun them from social space. We try to cultivate the ability to disagree in a civil way. A huge component of that is investing more heavily in education, treating teachers with respect, not treating them as disposable. The adjunctification of higher education in North America is a terrible thing. If we want to cultivate a spirit of trust in the classroom, we need to be converting those adjunct instructors into full-time faculty positions so that they have the time to work with their students. I also want to add a psychological pinch because especially in times of crisis, when we perceive these high levels of uncertainty, we all as human beings have this need for validation by others. And I think that's one reason why these things are perceived to be such cultural wars, because we are so sensitive towards others disagreeing. If we start to reflect about these needs in ourselves and find a way, as you said, Jason, of how we can communicate trust, but also communicate that we have this need for validation and that it's okay to not agree about things and that we are still uh, valuable parts of the human community. It's always a good idea to seek out common ground between positions. In that, we also need to separate facts from our own ideological values and the predictions that we make using these facts and theories of how the world works. Because especially in these crises that our democracies are facing currently, like the climate crisis, we need to work together at some point. Of course, that also means that we need to be strong against those who diametrically oppose our values, those who try to weaken democracy. Of course, we need to be strong there. Let me just ask one final question. Is there a point that you want to leave all of us with? I think one thing is that we as communication scholars neither overestimate nor underestimate the role that media plays in these big questions. I think there's a tendency sometimes within our field, which is of course understandable, to think that media is always the biggest thing that we can affect to change things in the political sphere. We need to be aware that media plays of course a role, but we need to be aware that the role that media plays is not the largest one. That is a perspective that is deeply interdisciplinary. We need to talk with social scientists. We need to be talking with political scientists. We really need to stretch out our understanding of the world and our perspective to tackle these questions. My final take is that communication science does play a big role in the transformations we are facing as a world because we as a field have learned to integrate interdisciplinary perspectives. As a very last sentence, I believe that there is hope, but we have to work for it. And if we do this together, I'm pretty optimistic. I think Lena's point about hope is very important. I can feel very cynical, but honestly, what picks me up consistently is the classroom, because I think it's such an incredible privilege that we have to be able to sit for a term with these young, really bright, eager minds that want to think critically about the world, and they're looking for hope. And so they almost force us to be in a position to be the hope giver. And I find that they're often much more mature and critical than even their parents. So the classroom is, for me, that's where I find a source of strength and optimism. Jason, Tim, and Lena, this has just been such an exciting conversation, and I appreciate you giving us your time and your expertise. 
Communicating for Impact is a production of the International Communication Association Podcast Network. This series is sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Florida. Our producer is Dominic Bonelli. Our executive producer is Sarah Brown. The theme music is by Ruhan A. Paniyavar. Please check the show notes in the episode description to learn more about me, my guests, and the Communicating for Impact series. Thank you for listening.